Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of this Feral Life podcast. Uh, we enjoy having you listening to us, and we're going to strive to do this every week, preferably on Monday evenings. It might be pushed to a different day of the week if we have something coming up. We're pretty busy, but this is actually pretty fun for us. Um, today, we are going to have a little bit more of a structured uh, program. We're going to be talking about uh, the... Um, why you need to have a garden and begin start try striving sorry striving for that uh, food independence uh even if it's just to offset what you're eating every every day what your family eats just a little bit of um but you're gonna eat don't grow weird stuff it's okay i I mean i don't have a big problem with that right like (laughs) (laughs) so uh, hey guys how are you so what my husband's trying to say is that he has a habit of going down these rabbit holes and like growing various exotic foods, you know, veggies. I love weird shit. However, you know, it's not the, I mean, it, it, it's not the exact, I mean, grow something that you're going to eat, right? That you're going to enjoy eating. We have, some For of me, the stuff we've grown has been good. Yeah, it's, it's been good. Like turnips, <laughs> you know, turnips are great. You know, they're hearty. However, they're just not for me, right? Um, so I'd rather have potatoes or sweet potatoes. And, um, so that's what I'm, that's what we're trying to get at, you know, to definitely, you know, um, plan your garden based on your dietary uh, requirements or whatever your palate is, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of turnips. Um, I'm a big fan of turnips because they go from a seed to a, basically a potato you can pull up out of the ground and use the top of in pretty much no time at all. They're, they grow, and they'll grow in any sort of crappy ground. You don't even need to really sell them. You can just broadcast spread them. That's why they're used so popular for growing food plots for animals is because they just, they'll just grow up out of everything. So we're really, we're going to kind of focus on some of the more common uh, type places. And most of the seeds that we're going to reference are going to be from uh, Baker's Creek or rareseeds.com. Uh, and like, shout out to Baker's Creek. Love you guys. If you want to sponsor us. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, the reason I'm going to use them is because they're very well known. They have extremely high quality seeds. Um, and uh, they're just, they're We've good. never had an issue. Never had an issue. Everything they've sent us has been exactly what it's supposed to be. It hasn't grown, like, weird stuff. You know, they're super, super good at doing the genetic isolations and make sure weird cross-pollination doesn't happen. Uh, another good place for seeds would be your local feed store. Uh, if you just need, like, if you're just going to go boss hog out and grow, like, a billion uh, of crookneck squash, you can buy it by the ounce or the scoop at most old-timey feed stores. Not tractor supply. Tractor supply is the Walmart of feed stores. Um, they're not They're not going to have anything cool like that. But, like, some mom and pops, Jimbo Jams, you know, country feed store, they're going to have a seed selection that's sometimes my favorite ones are the ones that find them that are like in those those breakfast cereal, like, you know, containers where you can oh, just like yeah. pour out a bunch into the little envelope right there and end up with like, you know, 400 of something with no time at all. So that'd be another place. Uh, are they GMO seeds? You're not going to, we've talked about this. If you can find GMO seeds, guys, send me some. I want to grow them just to see the coolness factor of them. You're not going to be able to find them. And everything's a genetically modified organism. If not, you'd have wolves in your house instead of chihuahuas, right? So humans have messed with everything, and they've made it, we've genetically modified it, including ourselves. So 
But as far as like, you know, putting spider silk in, in pumpkins, if you can find me a spider silk pumpkin, guys, I'll give you a heck of a cool shirt. That'd be awesome. I'd love one. Uh, <laughs> spider pumpkin, spider pumpkin. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the premise of this show is just, you know, what are the best crops to grow to self, for self-sustenance, right? Uh, and that depends on several factors, including climate, soil conditions, um, available resources. And then there are some crops that are really versatile that can thrive in a wide, like, wide range of conditions. So um, Eric's going to start going down uh, that rabbit hole, starting with uh, root crops. So, honey, what are some root crops that are really hardy that you recommend? Um, and then what are the best times to grow them and, and maybe give them a blueprint of how to grow those? So in the South, you don't really have um, two, one long growing thing. Everybody, thinks, everybody sees the South, the Mason-Dixon line and goes, oh, man, they'd be able to grow just from, you know, February all the way around to, you know, Christmas. And go, no, you kind of have two short growing seasons and then really stupid hot where everything dies. Uh, and you just kind of nurse your tomato plants and your pepper plants through the crazy hot season. And then they spring back to life and everything's good. Um, there's ways to mitigate that. And uh, I will talk about that here a little bit is growing in tall grass. Um, it's one of my favorite ways to grow. HOAs hate it. It's like one trip, simple trick to piss off your HOA is uh, growing in tall grass. But uh, it's super, 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 super effective uh, at keeping everything cool. Um, but if we're talking, so now we've covered that you have a very, very uh, limited window of grow time. And south of the Mason-Dixon line, most of your root crops, root vegetables, are going to be grown during the winter. So you're going to have, uh, like, your any sort of beets, radishes, carrots, turnips, anything like that is going to be growing the late fall through winter or literally right after Christmas until, you know, mid-February when it starts getting hot again. And that's potatoes and sweet potatoes as well, right? No, sweet potatoes are a different thing. They're not really a potato. They're more of a yam. And they come from, uh, like, Africa and South America areas, depending on the variety. Uh, there's a lot of really cool ones that come from, like, that, have, that are land races and came from down south. Uh but uh, potato potatoes come from Peru, and you'll see that most everything we eat comes from Peru. Corn comes from Peru, um, potatoes, most of the soil and ACAs type things came ended up coming from Peru. Peru's actually got something like a quarter of a million different potatoes crops. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then like some ridiculous amounts of corn, like 150,000 varieties of corn. Like you're not going to go and get like uh, any sort of like standard, you 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 grew you Google Peruvian pot instead of Peruvian potatoes. You're like, oh, <laughs> she hates it when I throw her under the bus. Um, yeah, Peru is really really cool for potatoes. Uh, that's where like your reds, your fingerlings, all those really cool blues and purples come from. Uh, those are all just varietals that are that came from Peru. And made their way over here through selection process, and we found the ones that are most palatable to palatable with the highest starch content that humans seem to like the most. Uh, ones that I would suggest that everybody in the United States can grow is carrots. Everybody can grow carrots. There's a, if you have just ridiculously hard ground, I'd suggest something like Tom Thumb carrot. It's a little bitty, super fat round uh, carrot. It uh, 
it doesn't grow a super long root. It grows at just a big, fat, short root. And that means you're not trying to wrestle with your super dense clay uh, to try to pull a really rocky ground, to try to pull out a really long, deep carrot. The only way that you're getting carrots that are really pretty, like they get in the grocery store, those really long ones, is they're grown in very light sand perlite mix with a tiny amount of compost and basically just fed liquid nutrients from the top. And they're grown in very thin rows. So they can just knock the back off of the row and all the carrots are right there. And then they just they don't have to wrestle them out of the ground or pull them up at all. There's there's certain parts of the United States where that's going to work for you to grow really long, deep carrots. I'd suggest everybody go for a more rounded carrot. Um, if you can, there are there's ball carrots out there that are really, really freaking cool. And they're a carrot that grows that looks a lot like a turnip or like a beet. Um, and there's another one that you're not going to have to wrestle out of ground. Right. Don't go for like the extra long, super crisp, you know, that that one's going to be really, really impressive once you've dug down the two feet to, <laughs> to get to get to where you're not just going to snap it off as soon as you put a little pressure on it. Um, the secret to growing really good carrots is to grow them in very, very loose soil. Uh, as you're going to grow your other root crops, the one that my wife really doesn't like is going to be your turnips. Turnips are super, super awesome. I like them. Uh, purple top, just standard purple top uh, turnip because they're super easy to use in soups and stews. She eats them in soups and stews because in soups and stews, they're indistinguishable from potatoes. They look like potatoes. They taste like potatoes. They You can't tell the difference from them. Now, a baked turnip is something that's more of an acquired taste. Um, now, it is food historically that's eaten by, like, uh, a lot of your Irish settlers that came over, uh, most of them were, uh, what do you call it, transplanted against their will to work on railroads. <laughs> Those guys have brought with them the baked turnips and and uh, everything like that. And then that turned into like using the whole thing for the turnip greens. Uh, turnip greens are great. Everybody's had turnip greens. If you don't like to eat them, just cut the, the top purple part off your, your turnip with the greens and everything and eat that to your animals. Your uh, rabbits and any sort of any other any any other critters can absolutely love that. Um, For potatoes, you recommend in ground or um, container. If if it's me, I'm doing them pretty much in ground, and that's because we're going to do stuff on on big scale, right? Unless you can get a hold of a whole bunch of those tree planting pots, you've seen the big plastic pots that the trees come in. If you can go, sometimes you can go to those tree farms. And they'll give you those plastic pots for like $2, $3 a piece just to get rid of them so that they're not having to pay to have them hauled off, right? If you want to grow in those, because you can use those many years at a time. Uh, and they're like basically a, a cutoff 55-gallon drum barrel. I mean, they're like 25-gallon pots. If you can grow in those, more power to you. They're great. They work everywhere. Um, I would say that if you're going to grow in those in the south, you're going to, like just regular root potatoes, you're going to definitely want to do that in the shade, like up against a wall, like a south, southern wall, so that you're getting quite a bit of shade on the bottom of that pot because that pot's black. It's going to absorb a lot, a lot of heat. Uh, it's going to need a drip line across the top of it to keep it moist. Um, but as far as going in the ground, you really can't beat it. Uh, one trick that I like to use is to grow like um, corn on, like do a wide row. 
right? And grow corn on one side and potatoes on the other side of the road. And it, it sounds weird, but you can your corn is going to make this really strong root system that's going to kind of cover the entire top of the road, right? Your potatoes are fine because they're going to use the bottom part of the road. They're, they're going to use underground what the corn doesn't care about. But you can always grab that corn stalk when it's dead and bend it over and lift up that top part of soil. And it makes breaking the, into the soil so much easier if you're doing big, healed-up rows to do your potatoes in. I don't suggest people grow potatoes flat in the ground. Like, just go out to your backyard, dig a hole, drop a potato in. Yeah, you're going to get potatoes. But now you have to dig deep to get them. So doing in a healed structure, big, wide heels, at least, you know, two and a half, three feet across, that's going to be the way to do it. I see people growing bags all the time. It works, guys. If you have a small backyard, if you have a small area, or you are getting older, uh, five-gallon buckets work great. Um, just doing it in those those potato bags or the bag gardens, they work great. My problem with those is they dry out really, really fast. I'm not a huge fan in the South of those fabric bags. They just dry out. They're they're all they're air prune the roots. Yeah, but that means that they're, they're letting all the moisture out too. And you're gonna have to basically constantly water those things. They don't really hold a lot of water. Um, the potato that's not a potato, sweet potato. Uh, I've never actually bought sweet potato starts. Sweet potatoes are not started the same way as a regular potato. So regular potato, you go and you forget about them in the back of your <laughs> in the back of your like closet for a while, and then the, you, you take them out and they're sprouted. That's perfect. You're just going to kind of um, now cut them up and let so where there's an eye on each section, then just spread them out on a table for, you know, 12 or 14 hours overnight to let that part you cut kind of crust over. And then now you just take all your potato wedges, at least two eyes on every little potato wedge and drop it in the ground, you know, a few feet apart. And ta-da, you have potatoes. You can do that with any potatoes you buy from the grocery store, preferably organic ones because they haven't been sprayed with the... Uh, rooting inhibitor right so uh now if we do sweet potatoes we just get a sweet potato we like from the store and we drop it in you can see where the vine used to like hang on to the pointy end right and we just and then you've got the other end which doesn't you can hear our our daughter is talking to her chickens and we'll get to talking to about how we ended up with some more chickens uh you might as well not even try to fight it, sweetheart. She's loving. She loves her chickens. She's just talking to them. Nobody's gonna get mad about her talking to her chickens. And so you'll take the other side of that, the the side that doesn't have the scar from um, the uh, the vine, and you just put that part in the water, just a cup of water. I've used everything from like old soup cans to whoops. Just hit okay, honey. There you go. I've used everything from old soup cans to just, you know, Rubbermaid containers and eat there, or glass jars, anything like that. It's going to just, just regular plain water. Don't, don't get, don't get fancy with it. Um, wash the potato really good, the sweet potato, and then just put it and drop it in the jar. You want to keep it so it's about half submerged. The top half, a whole bunch of these long vines are going to grow out. Once they get about six to nine inches long, you just break them off very gently from the, the mother plant and drop those little starts into another cup of water, just plain regular water. And those guys will start rooting really fast. Within, you know, 36 hours, they're going to have little bitty roots on them. 
congratulations, you've cloned sweet potatoes. Uh, there's no reason to buy sweet potato slips. You can go ahead and get those commercial varieties that everybody's growing on a massive, massive scale. Just pick a sweet potato you like from the grocery store and get your slips off of it. Works super, super great. If I find that it works better, if you, you know, sometimes you buy those sweet potatoes in a bag. I think they're called like super sweets or something like that, but they kind of have a waxy appearance. Those ones are actually literally covered in food grade wax. So they're not going to sprout. Those ones are the, they're the small little baker ones. They're, they're the size of a banana. Um, those are also ones you're not really going to want to grow because you can always harvest them when they're young and get them that size. You want to grow the most mammoth, giant sweet potatoes you can find. Uh, just be so that you have those genetics available. Right? So that works really good. Once you get a whole bunch of slips, now a sweet potato will continue to pump out slips for a ridiculous amount of time. They'll make 50, 60, 70 slips. And you're going to treat each one of those slips as a sweet potato plant. So you're going to put those, you know, 24, 36 inches apart, four feet apart if you have plenty of room, and just let them go crazy. I also suggest growing those on a hill. Uh, my favorite way to grow sweet potatoes is to dig a furrow. So that's like a little canal in between each two of the hills so that I can just flood the area between the two hills and get the hills completely freaking wet and then do that like once a week. So, uh, and then just plant corn, like I said, right, right on top, same way that I do with everything. Because I try to double or triple use like each row. The the sweet potatoes don't care about vertical space, right? They're a vine. They'll, they'll, some of them will go up. But you mostly want them to go laterally. Because everywhere that little vine is going to grow about a 10-inch area or a, a 6-inch little section of vine, and then it's going to touch the ground. Where it touches the ground, it's going to root and make more sweet potatoes. So that's why you, you don't want to let them sprawl in every direction. You just want to go along with your hoe or your rake or your foot or whatever. And every day you walk down there, you got one trying to creep off in the middle of the, the row. Just gently pick it up, steer the little girl back into the, so she stays on top of the row and uh, let her go crazy. Um, and you'll, that way you only have to turn over the dirt that you've already built up into that row. Right? Makes sense? You've seen the Absolutely. sweet potatoes. Oh, yeah. Oh, God almighty. They grow so... Sweet potatoes are probably the most... In the South, they are probably the most, like, generous, productive plant. If you can wait until the fall for them to... The plant to die back naturally, I think our one hundred our one 150-foot row made several tons of sweet potato we had so many of them like i filled up this 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 big like uh two-wheel wheelbarrow like six times with them now how long do they store for uh, practically forever um the, the sweet potatoes you're eating in the store are the ones from at least a year ago right sometimes two years ago uh because you have to if you want sweet potatoes to be sweet you have to cure them that's uh, 90 days at 90 degrees and 90 plus humidity. So that's kind of the south in the fall. So it works out really, really well. Uh, and if you don't cure your sweet potatoes, you don't get sweet sweet potatoes. They just taste exactly like the potato. Uh, is that a bad thing? No. Do they have any more nutrition? I think they're probably better for you before they turn sweet because that's a lot of sugar. And the sweet of it is the exact same 
way that you would convert mash in a beer. It's literally amylase enzymes that are going in there and converting the starches into sugars. And that's why it's like a controlled fermentation. That's what you're getting with uh, sweet potatoes turning sweet. And it was probably discovered completely by accident, honestly. Like some Probably why they were shipping them overseas, like on big crates a long time ago. Like, holy shit, this thing's sweet. Like, we didn't send it sweet. Shit. Like, shit, we messed up. Uh, and like, well, they liked them. Those British people sure enjoyed those sweet potatoes. Let's send them some more. Uh, and then somebody tried and finally figured out, hey, if you like put these in the dark and get them real warm and leave them the heck alone for, for a couple months, they turn sweet. The traditional way of storing sweet potatoes is to... Now, this is an old-timey traditional way to store sweet potatoes. I wouldn't do this unless you had, like, a plethora of cats. What would it be a plethora of cats? A, uh, what is it? What is it? What is it? A herd. A herd of cats. A a couple of good farm dogs, a couple of kids with night vision and and pellet rifles. Because you're going to end up with a lot of rodents. Because what they would do is they would build, like, a sweet potato crib. Right? As they would take and they would line an area with some wood and put down a couple layers of, uh, like, uh, burlap. And then they would stack the sweet potatoes and then burlap and sweet potatoes and burlap and sweet potatoes and burlap and sweet potatoes and burlap. Then they would dampen the whole thing in the middle of the summer and then throw some dry burlap over the top of it. And what that would do is it would give them the humidity, the heat, and everything else to, to slowly convert that uh, those sweet potatoes to sweet. Now, they would store in that way, like, say, in Alabama, Georgia, places like that, for a very long time. You will end up with... Um, you'll end up with them getting eaten by the local wildlife far before you actually eat all of them. So it works out really well. That's the traditional way to store sweet potatoes. I store sweet potatoes generally, I I try to have space between each one of them. So I don't want them to be, I, I don't want them to be stacked on top of each other in a giant pile because they tend to, their skin gets scraped and rubbed off as you move them around and dig for the big one on the bottom. And that causes them to uh, then start the rotting process. Bruising is much worse for sweet potatoes than, because remember you have a controlled fermentation that causes sweet potatoes to become sweet. So bruising is much, much more, um, what's the word for it? Detrimental to the long term of your sweet potatoes than just getting a little cut on them because they they, they scarify really easy, really, really well. And you're not going to be successful if you, um, if you're not going to be super successful with your uh, sweet potatoes. Sorry, there's a bunch of wrestling. Uh, with your sweet potatoes, if you're going to just cut them up and plant them, they don't work like that. You'll end up with just burying a bunch of money. Sweet potatoes have to be planted from slips. And. What do we get? I just wanted to—I never knew a group of cats was called a clowder. By the way, who came up with that? Who knows? There's I would no have thought way. Of cats, you yeah, know, that like just made more sense a fluffing or like <laughs> you know, like something besides a clowder. A clowder of cats. So that's a plus. And it's spelled—it's spelled like C L O W D E R. So it's not like cloud. Like like you figure they're fluffy, right? No, it's like chowder with the cloud in front of it. So it's not like it was a fancy name. 
Okay, perfect. So we covered uh, root vegetables. So now let's cover some legumes. Uh, that's your beans, your lentils, your peas. Um, and then what are the best ways to grow those, best times of the year to grow them? Uh, I'd like to say the last thing about beets is that beets are acquired taste. Some people like them, some people don't. Um, they're stupid easy to grow, ridiculous easy. I've accidentally tore a package of beets and locked and had beets show up in the driveway. So it's they're not they're there's they're not that difficult. If you're gonna grow beets and you like beets, all oh, more power to you. They're super, super easy. The tops are useful, they're great for making pickling juices and curing things. They're, they're, beets are great. One more bonus root vegetable I'd add is a mango beet. Uh and it literally is spelt like mango something beet. It is a huge sugar beet. Sugar beets are great if people can grow them, but um, as far as using them to make sugar on the homestead, it's super difficult, not worth your time. But the mango beet is super great if you have livestock. It's It'll last forever in storage. We're talking like 18 months to two years. They grow huge. We're, when we're talking mangoes growing huge, the Polish would plant them in the fields and run their um, and the Germans, and, and they would then they would run their 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 pork in there and just let them eat. They wouldn't feed them anything else. They just let them dig up the mangoes because some of the mango beets will get like fifty to sixty pounds. You don't want to rip that out of the ground, but uh, you can definitely let your animals do that for you. Everything will eat it because it's a sweet beet, uh, and they're they're running pretty decently high in protein, uh, eight to twelve percent. So everything will eat them. Your chickens will eat them. Your cattle eat them. Uh, your uh, horses will eat them. Your neighbor's children will eat them if you don't tell them what it is. Uh, everybody will eat them. So, and if we're going back onto, let's go to legumes. Um, I'm in the south, so the easiest one for me to grow is going to be obviously black-eyed peas. And everybody said, "Oh, cool! What kind of black-eyed peas?" They're like, I don't know. I buy them from the store. So I literally just go to the store and I buy a two-dollar, one-pound package of black-eyed peas. One pound of black-eyed peas is more black-eyed peas than you ever, ever, ever want to grow. I find that the cheaper black-eyed peas seem to work better than, like, the super fancy organo, uh, you know, like, fancy black-eyed peas, right? So, like, the Walmart brand or, like, the off-brand or H-E-B brand black-eyed peas, just the cheapest ones hit what, what do they call them? Hill Valley or whatever kind of Val Country Fair or whatever, just the real cheap ones. Um, they seem to really work well. The secret to getting black eyed peas, people will be like, "Oh, hey, we planted a bunch of the black eyed peas and they didn't, uh, they didn't do anything for us." The secret to black eyed peas is to take your black eyed peas, dump how many you want to sprout into a pitcher, like a much larger container than you think you're going to need, because they're going to expand about five times your size. And then add a bunch of warm water on top of them and set them somewhere for overnight. And they're going to expand about five times their size. At that point, you can pretty much just drop them wherever you want them to grow. They're great. I like, I'm a big fan of them, especially the production style. Black eyed peas that you would buy from, you know, Walmart or HEB or something like that. Because they're grown to grow their, their peas straight up. So there's no... Bending over real, the, the plants get about knee high. The, the, the beans grow absolutely straight up off the top of them for easy picking. 
by mechanical means or uh, tiny children or your friends when you've tricked them in to come over and help. Uh, and they are super productive. Eating young, they're like a string bean. Eating when they're old, before they turn, like start turning leathery. So when they're still real dark green, they're just indistinguishable from a regular just string bean. You can eat them just the same, pickle them just the same, pickle them. They're great. Pickle beans are awesome. Um, and do everything else with them if you want to let them dry in the bush and the plant. You've, you're back to uh, having black-eyed peas. Uh, so black-eyed peas are actually a bean. They're really cool. They're awesome. Love them to death. Some of the more um, traditional ones, I like the rattlesnake beans. They're super awesome. Uh, black-eyed, I mean, sorry, the, the pinto beans, they're super awesome. Uh, those are just going to be pinto beans that you buy from Walmart, the store, just regular pinto beans. No need to buy fancy seeds. Most of that, you'll just grow those again, and they work great. Um, peas, I, there's so many cool peas. I've tried wing peas. I've tried, which I guess are also called the, uh, asparagus type peas. They're cool as heck and they make really cool dye and they dye your hands and dye everything else. They're tasty. But as far as just going back to a standard old snap, like shell, uh, pea that, and you're going to have to actually buy those seeds. Um, they work super awesome. Just sugar snap. Yeah, sugar snap is the one that, I, that I've grown the most of. Uh, they're super, super hardy in the south. You're going to need to grow those in that window of time you have before. Hey, it's time to put on real shoes instead of wear sandals. And the time between you get that one cold snap around Christmas. So you've got that like that like 45-day period. Uh to grow your peas in the fall, or then you have your period in um, the spring that's like when the leaves just start budding out to before it's time to put back on the sandals. <laughs> you can't grow those, those uh, sweet peas. I'm sorry to like say it was to use some really obscure crap to like measure time, but y'all in the South, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, so that covers root crops, legumes. What about our grains? Wheat, oats, uh, corn? You're going to be super... I've seen... I've tried this. And I worked with um, a seed preservation society in order to try to save this Afghans, Afghanistan wheat. Right? Uh, so they sent me this little packet of Afghanistan wheat uh, that was really, really awesome. I grew it out in a patch. I harvested it. I maybe you know, 10 times the amount that I started with or 25 times the amount that I started with, uh, I harvested. You are not going to want to do this by hand. I did it. It's miserable. Uh, it's not fun. It's like one out of 10. Uh, only that one star is just simply so that you can say that you've done it. Uh, but yeah, no, overall, like, you know, zero out of 10, you don't want to do it. Your closest you're going to come to the two different types of grains that are easily grown at home are going to be your um, corn. Corn super, super easy. If I was going to say an overall corn that I would grow on a homestead, and we will grow again because it's super awesome and useful for everything, is painted mountain corn. I It was, I believe, originally established in Montana or Wyoming uh, and grown by a family up there for a very long time. 
And everybody said, oh, it will never work in the South. Let me tell you what. It is now one of the most popular ones in the South. It, it, it's beautiful. Painted mountain corn grows. Uh, every ear is a different one. It looks like those really super beautiful Indian corns. When it's fresh and young, you when you can peel down the top of it and hit, it press your thumb into it, it's uh, it's kind of milky and it's a sweet. It's a, it's a semi-sweet, like an old-fashioned sweet corn. Instead of this like triple sweet or like golden bantam 12 rows, super sweet you got nowadays. Um, but it's real good, really good overall corn. If you're going to grow, grow corn, grow one variety or grow them like 45 days apart. Like plant them 40, 30 to 45 days apart so that you don't hybridize with each other. Corn is dirty girl, man. She'll, it, it's, it's wind pollinated and the slightest amount from next door or 10 miles down the road. And you now have unsavable seeds because you never know what they're going to get. So I'd get a painted mountain corn. Uh, it Once you let it uh, fully absolutely mature and the husk to start to turn a little bit brown, it uh, is easily harvested. Uh, you get in, oh, three, I think I like three to five, let's say about four average ears per stock. The stock's got about six feet tall. Uh and they were full size ears. So it was not dealing like dealing with the twelve or fourteen foot tall crazy stuff they get out in Iowa. Um it was real good, real good corn. But fully when we went to Idaho, that's when we saw the painted mountain corn at um that corn maze that we went to. Yeah, I was like, Hey, there's painted mountain. It was beautiful. And uh but I'd grown it a uh, long time ago, uh, before uh, before I met uh, my wife. And uh I loved it. I've still got seeds from it. Seeds last a long time if you if you treat them right. Um, it's uh, when you let it fully mature and the outside starts turning, uh, you know, the husk starts turning like all white, whitish gold. Then it's a good flower corn when it's dry like that. Uh, it can be ground to flour. Uh, it can be milled. Uh, makes amazing pancakes that are weirdly gray. Uh, <laughs> Not like a blue corn because, you know, it's got reds and yellows and golds and striped corns and little bits of everything and every color. Uh, but the, the, the flower is not that attractive. The flower comes out like cement gray, um, which is weird, but it smells absolutely beautiful. It smells great. Super, super tasty. Lasts a long time. Every animal will eat it. Um, and it's really, really productive. Uh, I'd say as far as in growing here in in Texas, under just kind of really crappy conditions that year, it outperformed every other type of corn that I've grown. Uh, now, there's a lot of really neat corn in there. That is a heck of a rabbit hole. There's so many cool popcorns nowadays to grow, and it's literally just popcorn. There's so many cool, uh, like, feed corns and everything else you can grow. I would not suggest just buying feed corn from the store and planting it. Will it work? Oh, yeah, it'll grow. But you're going to get a very, very hard flint-type corn because uh, you've got your sweets, your, your, your flints, and your dent corn. Flint-type corn is uh, super, super hard, like crack it with a hammer. Your dent corn is because when it dries, it looks like it's got a little dent in it. Dent corn is going to be your stuff you're going to use for it's a softer, higher uh Flour content, higher protein, a little bit lower protein content, sorry, higher starch content. 
It's going to be super great for uh, your milling into flour. And then you've got your sweet corn, which is just fresh eating, and that's pretty much it, right? So as far as a, as far as a family homestead, corn is going to be your best bet. I did mention earlier that there's one other thing that uh, that I would grow, and that would be a millet. So like Porso millet, it's a big white millet. Uh, that one's great. It's really super easy to harvest. You've seen it at pet stores on those big giant sprays for like parrots and finches and stuff. It's gonna create it's gonna create a grass that's pretty evenly four and a half to five foot tall, and then a, sta- a stalk that comes out of that that's gonna be another about two foot tall. And then when it is fully done, it's gonna bend over. And then it's so it's it's pretty easy to go with your hand and grab six or eight stalks and then cut the bottom off of them and then drop them in your wheelbarrow. And then just forget about the rest of it, mulch it all up and turn it into like uh it doesn't make a good hay. I've I've tried millet hay. Um it always seems to mold on me, or because of where I'm at, it doesn't dry out enough and then it gets a good uh freeze and then freeze on some types of sorghum and millet hay will cause them to release cyanide. And you really don't want to bail that up then and feed it to your animals. Super bad idea. Isn't millet the same crop that's used to attract doves? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's just great for wildlife. You're going to have to be fighting the wildlife out of the stick to get it. Um, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great, 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 great crop for that. You'll have every type of animal, quail, dove, turkey, absolutely everything in there trying to come to your backyard. So if you want to just grow a patch of it, just to you know, like if you're in a suburban area and you want to grow a patch of it just to play with, it's great. Now, one thing that I've seen millet used for many times is to make like a breakfast type porridge. This is actually pretty good. Well, how do you crack the millet? You don't. What I've seen them do is because millet's naturally going to crack, right? When it when it gets water, it's going to absorb and it's going to the shell is going to come off. So they put it in, they let it dry, they put it in the water to where it would the shell would come off. And then they just hit it with a sprayer inside the water. And it'll just kind of circulate in there and all the shells wash off and go off the side. Now, at that point, you can either redry it, now shell-free, or you can then take it and they'll add, they'll cook it and add milk and sugar to it. And it's very similar to like grits, except it's sweeter. Like you don't really add to add that much, that much sugar to it. I've seen them use millet that way too. Now that you've you've strained it a little bit and make pancakes from it, make cakes from it. Uh, I've made beer from it. It makes great beer, actually. Really good beer. Um, it's more popular in the African subcontinent, the millet beer is, than the American uh, subcontinent or the American continent. They, uh, North America doesn't really do much with millet. Um, Africa does most of their stuff with millet. Uh, it's it's way more productive per acre than wheat is. We just happen to be in this like temperate area where the majority of from America, from Alaska to Florida, can grow wheat at some time of year. A- anywhere in between those two, you can grow wheat at some time of year. Not everybody can grow millet. Millet has a long like long growth period, but uh, it's super useful. If you're going to be above the Mason-Dixon line and grow your own millet, you're going to plant it a little bit early. I'd say five to ten days earlier than they want you to plant it. And then harvest it as soon as the heads tip over where it's slightly green still. 
so you don't lose everything to your dubs or finches and or whatever else. Uh, then you just lay it out on the concrete floor uh, or hang it up. But trust me, you're going to have just an absolute massive amount of it. From even a small patch, like a living room sized patch is going to make more than you want to try to string up. Uh, just lay it out on the floor, let it dry. Um, just, there's no, you can put a fan over the top of it if you want to. It's going to dry super quick anyway. Uh, and then I would cut and swath and bale that millet hay at that point before the first freeze. It freezes, you'll see the edge of the leaves turn red. Once that happens, it's cyanide. It's got cyanide in it. You don't want to feed it to your animals. You've lost whole herds of cattle walking into like a sorghum field after a freeze and having them eat uh, on that, that, that hay, that standing hay. And have it all be cyan and, and kills the crap out of it. Okay, so we've covered our root crops, we've covered our legumes, we've covered our grains. Now let's talk about leafy greens. You know, our lettuces, spinach, kale, and then you know, because that's a good source of nutrients as well. In a survival type situation, leafy greens are going to be more of a um, uh, hold you over between seasons type thing. We've talked about like eating the tops of your your turnips, the tops of your beets. You're not going to just, if you're growing those, you're not just going to chop the top, the whole top off and eat it. You're going to pick a couple of leaves from this, a couple of leaves from that. Uh, lettuce is kind of a pain in the butt to grow. Uh, I've done pretty well with it in a late fall, winter type period. You know, the transition between sandals and regular shoes in the south <laughs> and then vice versa. Uh, I... <sighs> Is lettuce worth it to me to grow big heads of lettuce? No. Is it worth it to me to buy uh, the, what do you call them, the lettuce mixes? It's, it's just a mix of random lettuce seeds. And then grow it more like microgreens? Yes. It works super great like that. And cabbages, you grow very big. Oh, yeah. No, cabbage is a totally different story than regular greens. Uh, yeah, cabbages are stupidly easy to grow. I mean, anybody in the world can grow cabbages from from the Arctic, literally there's Arctic cabbages, uh, all the way down to, you know, our buddies down in Australia. So, uh, and below. So you've got uh, um, leafy greens, here's how I do it. And here's how I've done it many times in the past, is that I just take a uh, large, wide container. Like, I mean, even one of those... Uh, like, what do we got the chickens in right now? The baby chicks in? It's a tote. Yeah, a tote. Just like a rubber-made tote. Pop a couple holes in the bottom with a hole saw. like, And then um, put a flat rock over them, over that hole, so that it doesn't just, you know, constantly drain everything out. Stuff, water can drain slowly. Uh, put a couple of inches of peat moss or something in there. And then, like, top it with an inch or so of uh, high-quality potting soil. And then just uh, take your... Lettuce seeds, like your bulk rando lettuce seeds, and then just gently spread them on top of there, and then take another handful of peat moss, and then just sift it over the top of the seeds, lightly mist the crap out of everything, and call it a day. Um, it works better if you just wet your your mix that you have in your tote before you add the seeds. So wet the crap out of everything, and while it's draining out the bottom, then throw your seeds on top, and then throw your hand, just light covering, very light covering of the peat on top. Mist the crap out of it just to get the peat a little bit damp. Um, then I just take a, like, put the lid back on the tote. Works great just to keep the humidity in there. 
until they start sprouting. Once they start sprouting, take the top off, miss them like regular. But when you're going to wait until they get about, you know, uh, two and a half, three inches tall, and then you can just clip them, just, just cut them like you would hair. You know, just go in there and just cut, 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 cut off the tops, and you'll leave a, leave a nice little, like, and then just eat the crap out of that. It's going to be like a spring mix. And then they grow right back, and they'll grow back, and they'll grow back until they run out of energy, which is usually uh, five or six cuttings, if you do it like that, um, which works great. Because you go out there, get enough for a salad. Each tote's enough for a big, big, big salad for two people. Like, I like to eat salad. When I'm going to eat a salad, I want it to feel full. I'm not going to just sit there and then stare at the salad and be like, oh, that was great. No, I'm going to eat salad like a cow eats salad. When you eat salad, I'm going to eat a bunch of salad. So, yeah, you make really big salad out of a tote. Like, like a 27, I guess that's a 27-gallon tote. So it's not that huge. Um, that's how I do that. That's how I do greens. Um, I've tried to do, like, heads of lettuce. And the romaine do really well. There's a whole bunch of really neat ones that are out there right now. Arugula. But arugula, you can just go find in the grass in your yard. There's a whole bunch of wild greens that are just as great. Or if not, exactly the same thing as they're going to try to plant, sell you as a seed. You can just eat from your yard. Uh, the There's uh, a lot of... Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, um, cabbages are super, they're super great. Like I said, there was an Arctic types. There's the... Um, man, what was that big mammoth? The mammoth cabbages are great to grow. But what are you going to do with like a 30-pound head of cabbage? Right? Like, like a one to two-pound head of cabbage, that's great. But unless you're just going to, like, you really, really want to make sauerkraut for the whole neighborhood, you don't need to grow one of those mammoth cabbages. I find that cabbage grown at home is a lot sweeter than cabbage you grow in the store. Like, I, I've, I've tried to grow it to get it to be that really light, whitish color on the inside that you get at the cabbages grown uh, in the store. I never get that. Every one that I cut on puts golden on the inside. Well, I think it's better. It's golden and sweeter. It's a... Cabbage is super easy to grow. Just make sure you give them enough space in between each one. Uh, you know, at least at least 18 inches, two feet between each each cabbage. It transplants fairly easily. Uh, it's grown from seed in the ground, and you can just... It's edible throughout all of its stages. So it's not like... I see people all the time, as soon as those seeds come up, they start thinning out everything. No. Once they start competing and start touching and start tipping each other over, then start thinning stuff out. Right, go in there and chop out the 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 smaller ones, and now you've got small fist-sized cabbages that you can eat. I do recommend spraying your cabbage pretty regularly with soapy water. Uh, I like the soapy water, and um, it's a little bit of it's a little bit of vegetable oil, a little bit of soap, just like regular everyday Dawn. Dawn dish soap, and then just like a pump sprayer and spray it over the top. So, like, if you get your, your caterpillar butterflies and stuff like that come in there, it leaves just enough tacky surface on the outside of the leaves that they get stuck to it and die. Uh, and, you know, mass murder is, is something I'm all about when it comes to wildlife messing with my food. Okay, so we've covered, you know, root crops, grains, our leafy greens, our legumes. So we got a good palate. We've got a good diet going. Now let's talk about the fun stuff. Let's talk about some fruit trees. Oh, good Lord. Apples, <laughs> pears, plums, berries. 
Um, I personally love to grow strawberries, so that is mine and my daughter's personal favorite. Uh, she also, she's a big lover of apples, so uh, the Granny Smith apple um, in particular for us is, is great, and so is the, what is it, the Gala, Gala apple? Yeah, those work really well. Nowadays, you have uh, all these crazy ones like Cosmic Crisp and stuff like that. Um, I would stick to some of the sweeter, old-timey apples with high disease resistance. Some of these new varieties that are coming out with, like, okay, I'm a huge fan of Cosmic Crisp. Cosmic Crisp is a great freaking apple. It's super sexy. It's super great. It's amazing. It's really, really delicious. Can't say enough about it. Um, but it's uh, it's a very delicate plant. Uh, it was a mutation of a um, sweet apple, which that uh, I think it was a mutation of uh, Honeycrisp. Yeah, it was a mutation of Honeycrisp, which Honeycrisp apples like are great. Honeycrisp. Yeah, you can grow Honeycrisp. They're pretty hardy. Uh, now, one of those uh, Wolf River apples, if you want just a really big, good eating apple, that is super good. Uh, like some of the largest apples you've ever seen in your life, like head size apples. Wolf River, great. Arkansas Black, great. Mule Nose, fantastic. There's a, but there's so many apples. Now, Trivia, ah, where do apples come from, lady? The Garden of Eden. No. <laughs> okay, close, but it's also known as Azerbaijan. Yeah, I would have never guessed that. Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. And Kazakhstan. Hmm. That is, that is, uh, that's where uh, all apples come from. And you can go out there to this day and find huge wild orchards of apples. And that's just their natural home. So, uh, you know, like apples are not native to America. And apples got to America with, like, the Americans. Same thing with squash. Squash is a, um, like, not an American type thing. Like, well, squash is an American thing. Melons are not. So during the whole Pangea breakup, um, our African continents got all the melons, and we had one native melon. It was the uh, that big smelly bastard. Um, I remember what it's called here in a minute. So we got the one big... The one big, the one big smelly bastard, and then we ended up with all the different types of uh, squashes, which is great because squashes are awesome. If we're gonna talk about apples. Oh man! So we just covered just a couple of types of apples. There is, um, I have a problem with fruit trees. Like, if left to my own devices and without check from my wife, I will end up with an ungodly amount of apples. An ungodly amount of fruit trees. Like you turn around, and the next thing you know, there's you know 660 trees. But we agreed to only have like 200, right? Because so many trees fit on a, a, such a small little piece of land. Uh, figs are really, really great. Uh, in a survival situation, are they super necessary? No. Are they something you can toss into the ground in a corner somewhere and absolutely forget about? Yeah, they are. They'll come back over and over again, and they're impossible to kill. And they bring in a bunch of wildlife that you can then murder. They make really big leaves that are great for compost, and animals love to eat them. Uh, they make really, really, really great uh, uh, fruit. 
uh, I would go with uh, brown turkey as far as a fig there or black Spanish. Those two are going to be your workouts. Just absolute beat down everything else. Make a bunch of them and get your sweet. Uh, apples were super, super important. I'm bouncing back to apples because my ADD is kicking in because I really love to talk about fruit trees. And is that, uh, that apples, man, it was... Apple butter, apple pie. They were just, they're just so diverse. You yeah, can make Lord. all sorts of desserts and Ciders and hard ciders. Yeah, hard ciders. Um, you can preserve it for jam. The apple wood is great for smoking meats. All your little trim off pieces, you save those. Uh, it's, the the general rule of thumb with an apple tree is that an apple the apple tree is going to be at its best when you can throw a cat through it. I didn't come up with that saying, even though I don't like cats. But uh, is it <laughs> is an apple tree is at its best when it's like when. You can throw a cat through it. So you want it to be nice, airy, and open in the middle and um, have most of its foliage to be towards the outside. So, or most of its sticks and everything to kind of be towards the outside. The the reason of that is, is that apples are super susceptible to a bunch of different types of blights and molds. You want to make sure that they have plenty of airflow through them and that around every apple gets plenty of airflow. Um, I have found the biggest problem when growing apples were those, uh, those here we have these like super red wasps and little sons of a guns will chew a hole in the apples or the grackles will come by grackles. and peck a hole at each freaking apple. And then the little wasps like start chewing on it. And then once an apple gets damaged, it aborts. That's it. Uh, the, the tree and that same thing with just about every other type of fruit. Because once it's damaged, the tree goes, why are we going to put resources into this? And then just yeets it off the tree. Netting over the trees works really well. Netting works really, really well. It can be a little pricey, but if you do it right, you know, you could save some costs here and there. But I would recommend netting over the tree. It's not practical to be out there with a shotgun or anything like that. Oh, my Lord, we've tried everything. It's plenty of fun. Um, And we have tried everything, right? And that was We tried snakes in the trees. That worked for like a couple days. And I realized the snakes weren't real. We tried CDs. We tried just walking out and like shooting shotgun in the air to scare them. Uh, and, um, you know, that Scare worked for crow, a little bit. We tried know. scarecrows. We tried those automatic sprinklers that were just like water. One, those actually surprisingly work really well. They work so really well, but after a while, they're just like, oh, apples, yeah. After a while, they're just like, oh, look, crazy. Free shower and dinner. You know, mm-hmm. like, they don't care. Then you run the risk of keeping your foliage damp all the time and running into like uh, some issues with rocks, the various types of rocks. So netting is going to be your best friend with that. Like seriously, it works really, really well for a bunch of cats. Um, Talk to them about um, how long it takes from planting an apple tree before you start getting any fruit out of it. Oh, well, we can get there. I can hear the tiniest yelling. We're still talking about various fruit trees. We only made it to apples okay, and, you, and figs. So you've got a bunch of pears. Uh, I like Asian pears. I think they, they're super great. I like to like a lot of these Asian pears. And that's going to bring us to our tree of the week. Our tree of the week is a ho, was it? Huzai. Yeah, it's a Huzai Asian pear tree. This is going to be straight off of Stark Brothers. It's a little bit more of an expensive tree. They run about Oh, 60 bucks a pop. They're worth it, man. They got these big, crazy, awesome golden pears. 
Uh, and let me read the description to you real quick. It says, Snappy, Tangy Taste produces excellent quality fruit with a slightly higher acidic content than other Asian pears. Tree is moderately vigorous with slightly spreading nature. Fruit is sweet like a pear, crisp like an apple with lots of juice. Medium large-sized fruit has an attractive golden russet skin. Best for eating fresh and making great pies. Produced in Japan from the 1970s, he tolerant. Rapens late August. Self-pollinating will yield bigger crops with the new, with you know, blah blah blah. So one of the best, one of the things I like about these, if you've ever seen a um, an Asian pear tree, is they kind of grow like almost straight vertical, right? So you end up with these really, really nice, nice like branches as well to use. Pear smoking food with pear is great, but the woods also makes really good, uh, like your trim off pieces, like steaks for your uh, tomatoes and everything else. It says it needs seven hundred chill hours. I can, I would say, I would go ahead and with everything that talks about chill hours, take it and throw it out the window. It's been proven time and time again that apples, doesn't matter what variety they are, they don't give a crap. They're going to grow however they want. They're going to fruit when they want. Uh, like, that's what they're going to do. They're, you can take any sort of crazy cold apple and uh, grow it just fine in whatever uh, unit you're in, right? So, like, we grow apples very successfully down here in nine. Like, we're nine ish so we're subtropical tons of apples no problem at all cherries no problem at all nectarines peaches pears plums pomegranates no problem at all um and that's just because they don't care fruit trees really don't care as long as there is a definitive seasonal change what a definitive seasonal change i mean either a fluctuation in the amount of water which if you lived in somewhere right on the equator you could simulate that uh, or just wait for a stormy season to roll through. So, uh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Make sure she's okay. Our daughter just came in. She just fresh out of uh, getting a uh, um, uh, change of clothes. And so she was barefoot, and she came running and charging in to go try to get to her chickens again to maul them. And uh, tripped and fell. So, poor tiniest. Oh, yeah. So uh, everything doesn't really care. Peaches don't really care. Um, Like the Arctic peach, I've had problems with. There are different types of peaches that have been selectively bred for a very long time to grow only in the absolute, like, coldest of cold. But the Alberta or the Alberta peach, they're fine. You guys are going to be great with them. They'll grow anywhere. They'll do whatever. Florida... We got friends, Georgia, right? Peach country. Uh, even if it gets cold, it requires it requires under about 1,800 chill hours. You can pretty much grow it anywhere in America. Doesn't matter where it is. Florida, Hawaii, doesn't matter. Um, so we've already covered the peaches. Now, here you can get really crazy with a bunch of other stuff. Melons, Nectarines. We're not getting them. We're, we're not there just yet. So. Oh, okay. So, yeah, a little you overzealous. Over- I love melons and watermelons. I'm a big, I'm, I'm super, super enjoy growing melons. I like crazy exotic stuff. Uh, if you're going to talk about every farm should have some plum trees. Plums are super, super good to use around the farm. They make great plum wine. They're one of the first uh, fruits that are going to, like your nectarines will come out about the same time as your plums will come out in the south. 
but uh, your wild plums come out like right off the bat, like they, they come out swinging. Um, but uh, yeah, plum trees, methylene, methylene plums, the family plums, they're gonna be a really, really super popular plum. They're they're really, really easy to grow. Yeah, methylene. They're just like your standard red plum. They're forty dollar tree. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna work really really well for you. They're from yeah man. I, I don't even remember who came up with them, but they've been around for several hundred years. Easy 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 to grow. The Ozark Premier plum was another favorite of mine. They're a bit more of an expensive tree because they're newer to the market, um, and but. They're really, really great in this area. Santa Rosa is the plum the plum that kind of everybody throws plums against. They're the guys that are going to be your larger type plum that's really good, fresh eating right off of the tree. It doesn't require sugar being added to it unless you want to make plum juice. Then it might need a little bit of sugar. Uh, plum juice, by the way, everybody says super, super happy and like really healthy for you. No, it's mostly sugar. Um, go ahead and just get some plums straight out the tree, juice them, and drink it. Oh, it's it's very sour. Uh, we've covered your plums, your pears. We can grow a Bartlett or anything like that, or a Seckle. They're they're, they're all great. Um, but uh, some pomegranates just stay with Wonderful. The Wonderful is a brand. You know, it's it's also like a company name. But it's also just like the, the big red pomegranate. Super easy to grow. There's a bunch of different varieties. There's golds, there's yellows, there's whites. But the wonderful one is just so easy to propagate and so easy to grow and so hardy. It's it's not worth uh, doing. It's not worth straying too hard from that. Keeps uh, past palms, pomegranates, nectarines, apples. So many types of apples, man. Uh, I think that kind of covers... Perfect. Yeah, I think that covers pretty much everything. You guys up north know which type of cherries you guys want. Us down here in the south, uh, we we have, you know, we got the, we don't, cherries is hit and miss. It's really, really hit and miss for us. We can grow them like your bean or tartarian. Um, we can grow them occasionally, but uh, you're going to end up with about 90% loss to birds. Like it's, squirrels and birds man they're just they're really hit it really hard but definitely don't grow something that you don't want to eat uh so like if you don't eat pears do not grow a ton of pears it might be worth it to grow asian pears to me are more like an apple than a pear uh i like to grow them because i like the juice off them it ferments really well if you'll see it you'll see a trend here as we go along is that uh, eric likes to make alcohol so <laughs> the, the juice is super good. The pulp that's left over after squishing them up, the animals love. It seems to make your chickens go crazy, your ducks go crazy. Everybody goes nuts for it. Um, they're also great to eat right off of the tree. They're great. We're, uh, and then Vanessa was saying, like, how long till you get fruit from the tree? It depends on how deep your wallet is. You can buy a five or six-year-old fruit tree that will fruit the next year. If you plan it correctly, uh, but those are like you know several hundred, several hundred dollars a piece. I I ain't got nothing but time, so I'll buy a little bit cheaper tree 
and let it grow and not expect uh, fruit for two years. Um, in fact, if I get a fruit tree that's trying to really put on a lot of fruit that first year that I plant it, I'll go and rub off the, the blooms just so that it puts more energy into growing and growing a root system than it does. And you'll find that's a big problem with peaches, especially pe the peaches that you'll find at homes, uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, you know, Sam's Club, stuff like that. And those little, those little bitty, you know, two gallon pots is that they're going to want to, they've been used. A lot of them have been actually stored in refrigerators for a year or so until the next season. Uh, and now they're just really, really, really ready to go. And they've been abused to the point where they think that they're going to die. And people are planting them at the wrong time because they show up there at the wrong time. Down south here, February, February is real prime tree planting time. It's getting cold. Everything's freaking died. Um, you know, uh, let's see. Christmas. Well, sorry, Christmas here where we're at is prime uh, late November, early, early, early uh, December, sorry, is going to be our best time to plant trees. You want to plant them in the winter when they're completely inert. Your trees, you don't want a leaf on them. You don't want anything. You want to plant them when they look dead, when they have sticks. And you want to water them in good and leave them alone the rest of the year. That's when you want to plant your orchard. You don't want to go buy a live tree from the the nursery and pop it in the ground unless they've just given it to you almost free. Uh, a lot of the reason for that is is that they've already decided, hey, this is my life now, and um, they're stressed out, and they're going to try to their the roots are going to try to grow in circles. You end up with a whole bunch of different problems going on with them. Uh, so yeah, it's going to really depend on how deep your wallet is. You can buy trees that are going to fruit in a year. You can buy trees that are going to fruit in two years. You can buy little bitty bare root trees that might fruit in three to five years. But that Wolf River apple that's a $60 apple for a two or three year old tree, uh, now bare root, man, they're only, you know, $14, $15, but you have to wait one extra year to get fruit. And to me, it's worth saving. If I'm going to plant 35 Wolf, Wolf River apples, it's worth me saving $1,000 to wait a year. It's a, so we're talking about squash. Uh, this is going to bring us to our plant of the week right here, and that is going to be the white scallop squash. It's also going to be called a patty pan. You see them call that a lot. Uh, I get those seeds from, you know, rare seeds. or But you, but at this point, they're they're everywhere. It's super productive. It makes a weird little – everybody's seen kind of what a patty pan looks like, a little scallop squash. Uh, my favorite way to eat those is to cut the top off, Scoop out the seeds in the middle and then add like a little bit of brown sugar, a little bit of butter, and then bake. They put the top back on the bake it in the oven. It comes out super good. You can eat them when they're young. Uh, these guys really put out a lot of flowers. So fried squash flowers are super good right off of these guys. And to do that, you just take your, you, you mix you up a little bit of batter. Um, I It's more like a pancake type batter. It's a real thick batter. Uh, and there's a bunch of different recipes for it. I don't got one right off the top of my head. Uh, you'll just take your whole squash flour, make sure there's no bugs in it, rinse it off real good, pat it dry, dip it in your batter, and then uh, fry it, and then they come out super crunchy. Really cool extra way to eat them. They're usually pretty high in vitamin C at that point. Uh, so, you know, keep that scurvy off you. Uh, as far as any of your summer squashes, 
stick to the ones like your your straight necks, your crook necks, uh, the like your yellow squash. I like the the gray stripe squash, the cocuzel. Is that how you say it? Cocuzel, cocuzel. I like those guys. They seem to uh, be super super productive and work really well. Um, you can find those anywhere, anywhere. When uh, winter squashes go, your acorns super easy to grow. Um, all your standard ones, man. Uh, the winter winter squashes are so when, the difference between a summer squash and a winter squash is how thick the skin is. And when most summer squashes grow on little, like bushy looking guys, and most winter squashes grow on long, viney looking guys. Um, acorn squash, like I said, is really easy. Butternut squash is really easy. If you were just to stick to those and spaghetti squash, you'd, you'd be pretty happy um, with what you get. Uh, and then your your pumpkins. Traditionally, pumpkins were eaten. Nowadays, everybody just carves them up. Now, there are varieties out there that are grown for their seeds that are great. They're fantastic, but they don't look like your regular orange pumpkin. Can you eat your orange pumpkin seeds? Yeah, sure. They're great. Uh, just roast them up and you're good to go. We we do it pretty much every year. Last time we had really great ones. Um, they worked really well. Uh, your sugar babies are the ones that are going to be like you use for your pies. They're little bitty uh, pie type pumpkins. They're small. They're super productive. They work great. And then that's pretty much going to cover your squash. Is so squash boils down to plant where you're going to eat. Uh, if you have a bunch of excess squash, you can make squash relish. Which works great. Like we mm-hmm. squash with us was great. In a Mexican dish, you would want to make calabacitas, which is really tasty. It's just cheese, tomato, corn. Um, you know, it's a really good uh, side dish for a main meal, for a main course. And then just a little trivia, guys: squashes are fruits, not vegetables. I what? Didn't know that. I didn't even know that. What? What? How they get fruit. this? Huh. Seeds on the inside. So they're fruit. Seeds on the inside and they grow on vines. Oh, man. Didn't even know that one. That's cool. So. <laughs> cool. And also, too, you know, uh, a relative of squash, obviously, is zucchini. So we do a lot of zucchini bread. Um, you know, that's just another way to, to utilize uh, zucchinis. You can can just it. like baking them. You can, you can also well. can it. Yeah. Um, and we'll we'll get into canning um, later on in, in some episodes down the way and teach you the proper way to can and preserve all your foods and, and fruits and, and veggies. Um, you can that freeze way, it and blanch yeah, it and freeze it. Blanch it. There's all, all sorts of stuff, guys. So we'll get into that in later episodes. Um, some really sketchy things that are going on. And this is the part where we talk about news and anything that, you know, we should be aware of just so that it's on your peripheral. Um, again, I'm not trying to create any type of, of, of scare. This isn't a scare tactic or anything like that. It's just letting you be aware of what's going on, right? What's what's going on in the news. And so something that really interesting that really stood out is, you know, China uh, is now buying South African corn for the first time as they start turning away from the U.S. exports. That's so going to suck. That is really going to suck. So that's what's really going to make you know, these micro farms um, and, and hobby farms and, and homesteads um, that much more relative and in need because, you know, there's a lot of challenges that are coming across that are going to be, you know, hitting the commercial farming industry um, here pretty soon. Um, well, and so. 
Part of the big problem with that is that it's going to result in a huge surplus of corn locally. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to have people just drowning the corn up in Iowa because they got nobody to sell it to, which a lot of it's going to go to animal feed. Animal feed prices will come down temporarily. Uh, but once they run out and then they don't get those contracts to grow again next year, they can't get the loans and everything to, to, to buy their seed and go again. A lot of those farmers are, are they're banned. They can't in their contracts. They can't save seed from year to year. So they've got to buy new seed every year, which is bad. That's it's a lot worse than it than uh it's a lot worse news than I think it comes off across because it sounds kind of harmless. Hey, look, they found a new market. No, that's bad. <laughs> that's uh there's there's entire generations of family whose whose entire livelihood is tied up in growing corn and uh growing those those um there's other types of grain, and now it just doesn't have a market. It's not like you can just put that corn in, you know, in storage somewhere and come back to it in a year and a half, two years. You have to turn it into something, a value-added product like flour or feed or something. And then the, once it's done, the timer starts on it. Once it comes off the field, is how long is it going to be before it goes bad, whether it's a, a flour product or it's animal feed. It doesn't have an indefinite shelf life. It's going to go bad at some point. So, yeah, it's this. We're going to come up to a point here real quick, guys, where there's just no more cheap food. Cheap food just doesn't exist. And to offset the, offset the cost, that's going to have to be growing your own. I'd like to just quickly touch on melons. I'm kind of a big, crazy melon person. And there's so many cool melons out there, and they all pretty much grow the same. So, uh you can in the south accidentally throw seeds out in the backyard and grow melons. So uh, if you like a cantaloupe from a store, save the melon, save the seeds from it, grow them. Really, really easy to save seeds from melons. Almost all melons are designed to go through an animal, right? Like the seeds and everything. So they require light fermentation. It's not like a squash seed where you can take it, rinse it off, put it on a paper plate, and it's going to grow. Can you do that with melon seeds? Yes. Will they grow? Yeah. You're gonna get you're gonna get a really low 60, 70 percent germination rate. To get to get to that ninety to one hundred percent germination rate, you just take all the guts and everything, scoop them out, pop them in a jar, put a plastic glove over the top, put put a little bit of water in there, put a plastic glove over the top of it. It's gonna naturally ferment, and once that glove inflates and deflates, right, and it's gonna inflate once by itself, then it's gonna deflate, take it out, and now it's gonna be really easy to separate. The guts and the seeds, you just spray some water in there. Everything will just, all the good, bad seeds will uh, float out. And along with all the guts and all the good seeds will be the ones that are down there at the bottom. Same thing goes with pumpkins, right? No, pumpkins uh, pumpkins are fine. You can, they have that. You can do the same with the seeds. Yeah, if you wanted to just sort them out really easy, yeah. that's how we've sorted them out. Just a five-gallon bucket and I take them out in the backyard with a sprayer and just spray like crazy. All the guts and everything float out and all the bad seeds, with all the bad seeds, the good seeds at the bottom. That's just a, that's when we're not trying to entertain our daughter and tell her to, hey, sort seeds. You know, she'll play with the squishy guts for a long time. Uh, So if you have children, let them squish through the guts to sort seeds. If you don't, or you want to go fast, you can always spray, use use gravity and your friend. So uh, Kajari melon is a really good one uh, that I've grown. You can get those from rare seeds. It's a uh, red, yellow, and white type striped melon. Super, super sweet. It's going to be in your same family as your 
like cantaloupes and grown almost identically to those. Uh, also in melons, I'm going to go ahead and throw cucumbers because cucumbers are a melon. So uh, I'd throw in um, what are the straight eight is in the burpy, burpless type mm -hmm. uh, cucumbers. Those burpless are, is great for pickling. Yeah, they're great for pickling. Uh, also those the striped ones from what are they, the, the gherkin type cucumbers those are great great for pickling man those are really really great uh and then my one of my favorite is it's kind of hard to find and if any of the listeners still have seeds for it i'll trade you a hat it's uh the um matiki painted serpent no is it the painted serpent melon yeah it's a painted serpent melon. it's basically an uh argentinian cucumber and if anybody's seen the Argentinian cucumbers, the big, white, long, super long cucumbers. But this painted uh, serpent melon is the stripy version of that. And it's it's a melon, but to me, it's like the most cucumbery cucumber in the entire cucumbering world. Right? It's super, super cucumbery. Um, yeah. Oh, that reminds me. The one... Uh, the one melon that, that's native to America is the buffalo gourd. You see growing along the side of the road. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it smells like crap, and it looks like little mini watermelons. Uh, but they have really, really, really good edible fruit. Uh, like, the root, huge. It's like a big, big crisp potato. But, uh, so, as far as melons grow, grow what you like. Melons seem to do best for us when we grow them in tall grass. And I said I was going to touch a little bit about that on growing in tall grass. But basically what it is is pick an area and let the grass grow and then plant then just like hoe out a row not real wide but just hoe out a row just one whole width across that uh throw in your seeds and then throw your drip tape on top of that and then just let it let them go crazy in that tall grass it's not going to hurt those melons at all they're still going to it's not going to inhibit their growth at all it's not going to slow it down at all you'll find you'll get a lot more melons in growing in tall grass and just fertilize them like regular. The grass is going to go crazy. The melons are going to grow up and push and drag the grass down. Uh, you'll find that there'll be a lot less bug problems. You won't end up with the cut, the the cutting, like uh, the vine beetle, the vine borers, and the cut uh, worms. You won't end up with uh, massive aphid problems because you've got a whole ecosystem right there. You'll end up with sun scald. If, if it's 110 degrees outside in the south, it's perfectly fine because the, the all your melons are nestled down deep inside of that uh, that tall grass. And I'm talking about tall grass. I'm talking about hip tall, you know, like maybe two and a half, three feet tall. Grass. All the OCD farmers are losing their, their oh yeah, their people are losing their shit. But I mean, guys, this is about survival, right? yeah. not so much aesthetics. Yes, you can make your garden to be you know as beautiful as you'd like, but. Also, too, it's going to take experience. You starting to grow your first harvest, you know, or your first your crops, and, and you know, you get your first flush of harvest, and and you know, just depending on the amount of work that you know that you've put into it, that's going to determine what your prefer preference is for uh, farming. You know, so everybody has their own little little quirks and their own little style, and, and that's just really dependent on your experience and, and what you like to do and how much work is required out of it, or you know how laborious it is so. it's it's driven many people crazy when they when i i bring them out like hey look 
the, the area where I'm growing root vegetables and stuff is all nice and pretty. The corn's nice and pretty. Everything else is the nice and pretty. And, the and then there's the melon and the pumpkin patch. And it's got like, you know. You better wear your, your water boots. You know, <laughs> yeah. You're going to be out there in, in, you know, high grass and looking for these things. But it's a lot of fun. Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun, uh, particularly around the holidays. You know, we had everybody come pick out their own pumpkins so that we could do pumpkin carving and make pumpkin pies and, and all that and, and jam uh, actual, uh, I'm sorry, can actual pumpkin preserve. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Then you walk out there and you come back with like, you just follow your nose, right? Like you're like, oh man, that smells really great. And you go down there and you, you come back up with like, you know, seven or eight different uh, melons. It just blows people's mind. The one thing I wouldn't grow like this is going to be your watermelons. I wouldn't grow my watermelons in deep grass. They're fine just growing around the corn or someone that gives them a little bit of shake. But uh, as far as any small pocket type melon, like Queen Anne's, like Pocket, any of those smaller ones, the cantaloupe size, like a big cantaloupe and under, uh, I'm growing them in tall grass. Uh, They work super great. They're super low maintenance. You can't overwater them because the grass will drink it up. You can't over fertilize them because the grass will eat it. Well, and it's, it's truly an art. And it's also, you have to keep in mind, too, like the amount of surplus of, of vegetables and fruits that you want to grow. Like, okay, so yeah, you're going to grow all this stuff, but then what's your plan after that, right? Yeah. You can't just have it all spoiled, or you, you better have a plan to, you know, be able to preserve it, can it, whatever you're going to do, freeze dry it, doesn't matter. Because um, if not, you're going to just end up with a bunch of, of, rotting fruit and stuff right and that's not cool um or you could turn it into animal feed whatever the, the whole idea is that you know we want you to create we want to encourage you to create a self-sustaining farm that's going to provide sustenance but it's also going to give you a closed loop effect where you can actually feed and live off of everything and, and you know use whatever's left for animals and stuff and, and just provide that closed loop for you right so now you don't have to wander anywhere else to, to feed and, and self-sustain your family um, but just you have a have a game plan, just like anything else, right? Like, what are you going to do with the surplus of things? And me and Eric, like, we're really big on community. So to us, we're like, hey, let's go to the shelters and let's donate food. Or, you know, for of course, we, we try to monetize things or whatever. But if we have a timeline that's not working with, you know, that's working against us and not for us, and we need to, you know, unload a couple of things quickly, then obviously, you know, we're going to encourage you to, to share and, and share with your neighbor and share with the shelters and, and, you know, uh, the food banks, you know, things like that. And so, um, and that's really cool. That's going to give you, that's going to create a network for yourself, for your family, for your farm. And people are going to start getting to know you. And then, you know, there are going to be people that are going to be willing to want to buy things from you because they know that it's coming from a healthier source that they can trust. Um, so they are going to ask you like, Hey, do you sell any fruits and veggies? And at that point you can decide whether or not you want to post up on the side of the street and sell out of your vehicle, or if you want to go and get it costs you almost nothing to market, do. Yeah. you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, it's always a great experience. It's going to, it's going to open up a multitude of doors for you, you know, providing that network and that community. And that's what we're really all about. So just keep that in mind, you know, if you're going to grow, um, you know, just, have in mind like the amount that you want to grow and what you're going to do if you have an excess of things. Yeah, I got a, I got a problem with the whole excess growing thing. It's yes. really easy to buy seeds. It's really easy to put Literally seeds in the ground. Anything Eric touches turns to grow. Yeah, I, I can just look at things sideways and they grow. Like it's it's nuts. I got coffee plants inside. I, I've even challenged him like with the most exotic things, right? Like, yeah. That are harder to grow or whatever, and he can grow it. 
And so I'm, I'm done challenging him. I know that he, you it's know, like benign neglect. Do I want wheelbarrows <laughs> and things? Do I want my back aching? Do I want to have to hire hands, you know, to come help or like throw a harvest party? And it's a lot of work, guys. You know, everything's a lot of work. Like um, but the it's, one it's year, very rewarding. One year, um, I was unsupervised. Um, and uh, I just planted whatever I wanted. And it was a lot. Uh, like way like a ridiculous amount and uh it got to the point where like the 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 food bank would see my truck and like lock the door because they were like no we're not going to help you unload the back of your truck with two thousand pounds more of, of squash what are we going to do with it we can't give it away nobody even knows how to cook squash right and that's the problem like a lot of people don't know how to cook so guys just know that once we get our website up and going we're also going to have links to recipes on there because we want to not only teach you how to, you know, uh, plant, grow, and harvest your crops. We want and, and preserve them. We want to teach you how to use them and how to use them in various recipes that are going to feed your family and, and you know provide delicious meals. Right. Um, a lot of times, you know, you're encouraged to grow all these things, and then you're stuck with like, you know, like my husband said, like squash. Like, what are you going to do with like a hundred squash? Like, would you ever have thought about making a you know, uh, the squash relish or the, um, canning the smoked squash soup. Canning smoked squash soup. I never had smoked squash soup until I met my husband and it is amazing. And so, um, we'll be able to provide, you know, recipes as well. And so that way you all know that you're just not being, you're not, we're not going to leave you flapping in the wind with all this, all this crop and an abundance of food and stuff. We're going to teach you what to do with it. So, uh, last bit for the day, I believe is skill of the skill of the week. Skill of the week. Skill of the week, and this is going to be a fun one. It's going to go with uh, our whole uh, chickens, right? Because, well, um, quick side story, side quest, uh, is that uh, I was outside, and we were, like, just watering the random plants, and around the blackberries, I noticed, like, like, hey, look, oh, hey, there's a chicken, like a wild random chicken had just made, like, a little nest there, and then out here in the middle of the yard is, like, a baby chick that's, like, half dead. It was mostly dead. I was like, eh, maybe I'll take it inside and kind of warm it up and, and see what happens. Well, it came back away. Miracle. Whatever. Uh, it, it, it made it. And so my daughter fell in love with it, named it George. <laughs> and uh, of just like random chicken, George. George, yeah. Forrest. She's four. So just George makes sense. I figured it would be a cute name. Nah, George. So uh, we have George. And then uh, we went to uh, Tractor Supply to go and, because I didn't have any chicken stuff right now. We're in the process of moving. Uh, and so I just went to go get like a little feeder and a heat lamp and everything. Well, they have chickens and they had cool chickens. And so I was, they wouldn't let me buy one chicken. I just wanted to get George a friend, right? And uh, he ended up coming home with four chickens, guys. <laughs> Four extra, four extra chickens. Well, they were beautiful. They're but they're, they're yeah, lavender Orpingtons. Uh, they're, they're they're cool. They're like they're like uh, emo chickens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they actually are quite cool. Like, they're really I saw cool the like adult versions of them, and they're very beautiful chickens. So I'm happy. So and uh, so our uh, our skill of the day is going to be salt cured egg yolks, and I'm going to do uh, kind of my best to describe how to do this. I'm also going to be reading a little bit off of uh, Practical Self-Reliance is uh, their uh, recipe for this because I actually really like their recipe. They're pretty cool, man. Uh, they they pretty got a pretty good recipe for this. One of the things I've made uh, the salt-cured egg yolks before, 
uh, one of the things I like about them is they kind of taste like um, Parmesan, right? They're really, really, really good uh, as like a topping for uh, your uh, carbonara or stuff like that. So what you're going to do is you're going to take you some eggs. You're going to you're going to take you a wide, shallow pan, and you're going to put down a, about three times as much salt as you think you need. So you want about a quarter of an inch like of salt in the bottom of the pan. You're going to take your spoon. You're going to make little divots in that uh, in that salt. Then you're going to take your eggs and separate out the yolk from the whites. Then you're going to spoon that yolk and put it into that little divot that you've made. And once you've got an entire pan full of eggs, they can be pretty close together. They can be, you know, like like, like a quarter to a half an inch apart. So they're going to be super close together. You're going to then cover them with another quarter inch of salt. And then you're going to leave them alone. You can, if your house is cool, like 50s, 60s, that you can put them in, in a back closet somewhere, uh, cover the top with saran wrap or something, leave them in the back closet and leave them alone. Uh, if your house is warm or you like a really warm house, like above 55, 57, 60 degrees, they're just going to pop them in the refrigerator and leave them alone for a week. After a week, you're going to take them out. At this point, they're going to be slightly tacky feeling because they're not as dry. What you've done at this point is you've inhibited the growth of bacteria so that only our favorite bacteria, lactic bacteria, or lactobacillus is going to be able to grow and kick butt in there. And so far, I haven't actually read anything off of their website here. But, uh, uh, yeah, you don't want to do this in, like, an aluminum pan. You want to do it in a glass pan or, a like, a plastic container or a, a stainless steel pan just because you don't want to add any sort of craziness through there. Um, do, 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 you're going to have a little you're going to have a little bit of salt left over on top of the egg. That's okay. You can leave it there if you like a little bit salty. Or you can rub it off with a damp towel. It works out really, really great. Now you need to salt. You need to air dry them now. They're one of the coolest ways, and that's why I'm going to reference these practical self-reliance guys. Shout out to them. Um, kudos for your pictures. They're great. Is that they take a, a strip of like, uh, what do you call that stuff? Like muslin or like uh, your cheesecloth. So they're just taking a single strip. It's about three and a half, four inches wide. They're putting the egg yolk down in the middle. They're folding it over, and um, they're putting a whole bunch of them just in a line with about an inch in between them, um, about an inch and a half in between each one of them. They're folding it over. They're taking a piece of twine, and they're tying to make little pockets. So, like, each egg yolk is in its own little pocket. It seems like it's a lot of work. It's not. It has a really, really neat effect. It looks really cool. They look like little tap, like little uh like where there's originals, like all in a little line. Now you need to dry that. You can dry that somewhere uh, cool. Uh, it, a closet works really, really well. If it's a cooler closet, uh, you know, hanging it from the air conditioner vent would probably work really well. Uh, put it back in your refrigerator would work really well. I've hung them up like on the backside of the door in a cool room. Uh, and then just leave it up there for another week. At the end of that, they're going to end up with these tough little not sort of semi-crumbly, dark-colored little egg yolks that you can grate just with a cheese grater. You want to use a finer cheese grater, they make super fancy little tiny micro blader uh, uh, cheese graters, but any type of cheese grater you want. And you're going to add that to salads. You're going to add it to everything else. Is it, a, is it like one of those superfoods that's going to save your life in a zombie apocalypse? No. Is it cool? 
Yes. Does it get rid of a bunch of extra eggs when you have so many you don't know what to do with? Uh Uh-huh. And uh, is it worth it to me? Yes, because the input on the input time of it is very little. It takes a long time to make, but the actual work of it is very, very little. Maybe 20 minutes of actual, like, hands-on to make something that basically you can substitute Parmesan cheese for. And it has the richness of the egg yolk as well as the, the Parmesan cheese taste. Yeah, put them on top of your salad. So if you have, you know, if you get what during certain times of the year, you're gonna end up with a if you don't if you don't get really heavily into preserving food, you're gonna end up with uh like what our ancestors did, where they would end up with plethoras of grain certain times of years, plethoras of freaking vegetables certain times of years, plethoras of fruit certain times of years, but not like a steady stream like we've got today. It'd be like Boomer bust with your greens and a boomer bust with your uh, uh, root vegetables and so forth and so on. So it's really nice to be able to have like when you get when you're starting to get real tired of eating uh, your your salads to grate some of this up on top of it or put some of this on top of your uh, like avocado toast. Uh, just grate a bunch of it and put it on there. You'll find that you don't want to just pop the whole thing in your mouth because it's quite pungent. It's like it would like be like grabbing a chunk of Parmesan and popping in your mouth. Uh, but it grates beautifully and you'll be, you'll, you'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. It's really, really good. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you can do a sugar version. I don't recommend it. Um, I like the, uh, the salt way is, is a thousand times better. And now you don't have to take that salt and chuck it, right? All that salt's really done is now absorb like water. You can take your salt if you want to reuse it or zombie apocalypse or just be reduced, reuse, recycle. You can put it back, you can put it in your oven in a, sh- a shallow pan and bake it to dry it back out and then reuse it. So, yeah, you can just have a pan dedicated to doing this all the time. And I guarantee you, once you start sharing it with people, uh, they're going to be like, holy crap, where can I get more? And maybe that's another income stream for you. It's all cured egg yolks. Pretty cool. So that's probably going to be it for today, guys. I've uh, I've talked enough that uh, dinner's cold, and uh, now I'm hungry. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, we enjoyed talking to you guys today. It has been a lot of fun. Uh, this is a little bit longer episode. We'll try to keep them to a more reasonable time. Hey, if you like the long episodes, that's great. Uh, uh, we can talk until the cows come home. Uh, if you'd like to go ahead and uh, support us, you can visit us on our uh, Etsy, which we've actually got quite a bit of stuff up there. It is this thisferalife.etsy.com. Uh, uh, do we have our Venmo up yet? No, not yet. We don't have any of our other stuff up there. There's a, yeah, we have the This uh, Feral Life uh, podcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to send us any comments, uh, complaints, questions, Anything like that, we'd love to hear from you. Um, other than that, guys. Oh, where are most of our listeners based out of? I always think that's so neat to, to hear that. Oh, right now, um, we have uh, Australia, Indonesia, Germany, and then everybody in the world is using an IP out of Boulder, Colorado. Nice. Okay. So it's not that necessarily the whole city of Boulder is listening to us. It's just that um, they're just, uh, they use that. Uh, VPN? VPN out of Boulder, Colorado. Which is perfectly fine, guys. 
Uh, looks like most of them are listening to us on uh, Amazon Music and Spotify. Sweet. So. Well, thank you guys for listening, and thank you for you know giving us some of your time. Yeah, we we love our listeners, guys. We love we love talking to you guys. Uh, even if we you can't you know we can't have a conversation back and forth right now. We'll do some live episodes in the future once we get a little bit better at doing this. Period. <laughs> a little bit more organized. We'll do some live episodes in the future. Uh, thank you for listening to us. Uh, this has been This Feral Life. Uh, going from our family to yours. Thank you much, guys. Bye.